This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. In the past couple of years, this program has delved into the genre of historical mystery fiction on more than one occasion. It's here that we often find keen insights on life and religion in medieval times. So once again, we will explore the fascinating world of Europe near the beginning of the second millennium. With me on the show today is Susan Weintraub, uh, Susan has lived in many diverse places. She was born in New Jersey, then she's lived in France, Oklahoma, Indiana, Brooklyn. She's back in New Jersey now, and she's taught every grade level in public, private, and home schools. Also, she's taught at universities, lectured at conferences, and church audiences. She is currently the associate principal of Gittleman Hebrew Day School in Rockland County, New York, and she's written a number of columns for newspapers, and uh, journals over the years. And uh, today we're going to talk specifically about two papers that she's written about the uh, genre of historical mystery fiction. One is entitled The Hidden Flame, Disputing the Myths of Jewish-Christian Relationships Through Medieval and Renaissance Historical Mysteries, and also Reprocessing Medieval Jewish-Christian History, Reading the Texts as a Jew. And uh, Susan Weintraub, welcome to Common Threads. Thank you very much, Fred. It's good to be here. Let's talk about something you emailed me as we were setting this up together. Tell us how you got involved in uh, commenting or writing about historical mystery fiction. You, apparently you were asked to comment on a book, The Ritual Bath. As a university professor, I think I did not read certain mysteries. In fact, I, I disdained them. There was a mystery, a woman's mystery reading group uh, at Ball State University when I was living in Muncie, Indiana, and a good friend of mine asked me to come to comment on Faye Kellerman's The Ritual Bath. I read it and came and discussed with very intelligent women uh, this whole new genre for me and uh, found that I was really delighted to read so much of it. I also was unaware of the roles that observant Jews played in mystery genre. After that particular work, I, uh, I was asked to do more on Faye Kellerman, and I did the Quality of Mercy at the Mystery Conference, which uh, is housed by Ball State University in Muncie, and I met Sharon Newman. Who's, who, uh, who has been on the show, by the way. That's right. Sharon mm -hmm. told me that, mm -hmm. and uh, was introduced to her works, uh, just loved what she had done, and have had a good friendship with Sharon now over the years. And then the next conference I went to, I worked on Sharon Newman and met Joellen Clary, who I know that you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, she asked me to come to the, the conference at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. And so I began getting more and more immersed, and, then did, and I've done projects now that are slightly more academic, talking about whether or not the portrayal of Jewish-Christian relations and the Jewish community are in fact accurate in history texts and in the historical fiction, specifically the mysteries that uh, I began reviewing, and, and I found some absolutely amazing uh, the discoveries that that the scholarly texts 
and the mystery texts are in fact identical in that the tremendous amount of cultural diversity which existed, the interactions which existed, but so many of the texts which are in high schools and in many of our lower level college courses in fact are just not accurate. So I found these two very diverse uh, medium that uh, from the, the mysteries which was being read by the you know the general public to scholarly texts that they were in fact in agree uh, in a, I've sent to publishers dates are wrong names are wrong uh, sometimes we think of academia as being stuffy but in fact people love to come and and discuss this very fact what is true what is closer to historical truth at any rate I don't know if we always know what is true and what has been in too many of the texts up to this date. So that, that's one of, the, uh, that, that's one of the, the projects that I've been undertaking over the last few years. Uh, just curious then, why do you think there are so many inaccurate history books uh, in the college and, uh, and high school level? I'm not sure. I think that this occurs in general, uh, that there are many uh, inaccuracies. I've, cur- I've sent to publishers, dates are wrong, names are wrong. Uh, countries' names are often printed wrong. Sometimes there are technical errors. And then we have, uh, how, how do we create history? And certainly the winners write history. The, um, those who are the, the cultural majority write history. So often it's written in such a way which, quite frankly, reflects one side. Then when we go back to those documents, this becomes the canon. And where do we get diverse sources? Now, one thing that, that Sharon Newman had told me, which I found so fascinating, was the whole uh, topic of marginalia, the notes that people wrote in over the centuries on the margins of books, and that this gave many people uh, a new insight to how things were. You can go back into legal records where um, you can see, for example, Jews and Christians doing certain things together, suing other partners, so you begin to realize, well, there was an interaction. Much of it was hidden because of the many of the policies of the church. Uh, people were fearful, certainly through the Inquisitions and Crusades, to reveal too much. And there also is, it is written, certainly within Jewish historians and Jewish records, there is another view that is there. And as our society has become much more multicultural, we therefore reach out to other cultures to include it in what is the main history. Perhaps we'll always be rewriting history. So you're saying that, for instance, if a historian was to go back and look at texts written by the church, they would find a great deal of anti-Semitism, come to the conclusion that, okay, this was an anti-Semitic culture because this is what the Church says, and, and never delve any further? Exactly right. And not only that, but to view Jewish society on the margins, that, that Jews did not participate, they did not contribute, that, that Jews were seen as victims of the Church's anti-Semitism, which certainly was true. I'm not, I'm not negating that, but that there were other parts to life. And that generally is not included. Look what happens when we have newspaper articles that are printed today, that there are often errors which are printed in, in days later or on the last page. And people begin to create a history from what was written in the newspapers. And therefore, even though there were these errors, they've become incorporated into students' research papers, into other textbooks. And you can footnote them. This also happens, except that it's much more difficult to go back to the Middle Ages and recreate what society was like. There are a lot of people who try to do this, to create a social history. What was it like for the average person, not just the king's wars that happened to be going on, or, uh, or the famous marriages or land acquisitions, but what was it like for an individual person? And through this, we can't, we, there are occasionally things that are written which give an understanding of the wealth of the life of that time and how people, in fact, uh, did, did work together, did have friendships. 
Why were there so many laws prohibiting, um, for example, marriages between Jews and Christians, interactions between them, partnerships, doctors' visits? Because it was happening. You don't need to create laws uh, when, when nothing is going wrong. So the reason that there were all of these laws was because this interaction, in fact, occurred. So often we can go backwards and create the causes when we have a, a consequence of it, such as, you know, church law. So give us a few examples of uh, the interactions that Christians and Jews had that uh, were, were very mundane, if you will, uh, but certainly contributed to the society's functioning back in the Middle Ages. Well, there were, there were two ways. One is a very interesting aspect in that uh, both the uh, church and uh, um, Jewish uh, scholars worked together a great deal. They worked on translations. Many uh, Christian scholars... Uh, bishops, canons, even popes, often wanted to learn Hebrew. And you will find that, that uh, from very small towns to the, the major intellectual centers, that Jews and Christians were actually studying together. And so that was a higher level, and there were many friendships that, that occurred because of this, and there were many church leaders who tried to save those in the Jewish communities when pogroms occurred. So that's on a higher level. On a lower level, there were business partnerships, and I know Sharon Newman has um, the... Uh, her main character, uh, Catherine uh, Levander, her father is a, a crypto Jew, a hidden Jew, and uh, he has partnerships that take him all over, and, and there's a cousin who is Jewish and the main character, Catherine, who have many adventures together, and there were certainly many intermarried families that you find that there were interactions between them constantly. They went to, uh, you know, uh, baptism on one side, and... Uh, Greet Mila and the other, that there were that people were eating together, celebrating holidays together, that people in the towns uh, interacted. In many towns, for example, the, uh, the market day was changed from Saturday to either Monday or Thursday so that Jews could participate. Well, if people weren't talking to each other, if people weren't interacting, if people weren't buying and selling from each other, there would have been no need for that. But this actually occurred through much of the Middle Ages, that there were, there were other dates for markets besides Saturday so the Jewish community could actually interact. Certainly Jewish physicians were very well known, and almost despite the, the laws to the contrary by the church, we, ha we have, uh, for example, in uh, The Quality of Mercy by Faye Kellerman, we have um, the, one of the main character's fathers who is the physician to the queen, who is Jewish. And we find this, this throughout much of the uh, societies there, that the doctors were coming and going, and we can see this reflected in many of the, the mysteries that, that I've discovered. We're talking about Europe in general, though. I can't imagine that it was terribly monolithic, though. Uh, which countries are you talking about, for instance, uh, that had the, the affairs on, on different days other than Saturday and uh, where there was uh, basically the beginnings of interfaith dialogue, is what you're telling me, with the Jews and the Christians, uh, or rather the Christians learning from the Jews? Uh, you know, Certainly the market days um, I learned about from Sharon Newman, and that occurred in much of France. I know it occurred also in Germany, because there was a, there was a wonderful uh, book that was written, Gluckel of Hamelin, which was actually a, a journal written by a woman in the 1600s, which is slightly past our era, but life had not changed so dramatically, and it's the only diary of a Jewish woman from, from this era at all. It's the earliest one that has been found written in Yiddish. And she talks a great deal about going Two different markets trading with non-Jewish merchants, and they're not on and they're not on Saturday. So that we that is a wonderful record because it's actually written by an individual who 
despite being somewhat wealthy, was an ordinary person. She wasn't a monarch. She wasn't, uh, you know, a, a political leader. And, and it was a woman, which was also quite rare. So you see this happening. But even in places like England, where the Jews were expelled in, uh, in the late 13th century, uh, and were living there, obviously not uh, kind of in, as a crypto status, they also had interactions there. How did Queen Elizabeth get, you know, a, a Jewish doctor if there were no Jews living there? So obvi- you know, obviously there were. But we see a tremendous interaction in Spain. It's abruptly cut off in 1492 with the Inquisition, although many Jews remained there. Certainly in France and Germany it occurred. Um, in England, to a lesser extent, Amsterdam tremendously because uh, Holland was one of the few countries that allowed uh, total religious freedom. And it became a haven after the Inquisition. So certainly in all, all of these countries, less so in Eastern Europe, which begins to develop um, a little bit more. In Italy it occurred, um, and in, in Greece to a certain extent it occurred. It's a very old community in Greece. And in Turkey it occurred. So we have many countries across the spectrum. And after 1492, the northern um, Mediterranean countries, the North African countries, also tr- had a tremendous Jewish community, which were, who were also merchants, and they traded freely with the with other ones. So we see this happening, in fact, across many countries in Europe. Not every country, but many. What was the reason given, or reasons, uh, that England expelled Jews in the 13th century? Well, there were the the real reasons, or what the Church said, or. You know, I mean, the Jews, a little bit of both. Yeah, the Jews were viewed as um, as a separate community, alien in some way. That we want everyone to be the same. We want everyone to to worship the same, to be under the same laws and controls. And although the Jews proved to be good citizens, um, they they were different in that way. A certain amount of greed was involved when you expel citizens and can take over their property and assets. That um, benefits the monarchs. You know, it's no. Uh, it's uh, we can see by looking at the wealth of the monarchs who are uh, in existence today. How did they get so rich? And you know, this is not to cast aspersions on you know, Queen of England or, or Sweden or any of the countries that still have monarchs, but certainly it was because of their acquisition of property from many individuals. The Jews weren't the only ones whose property they took over, but this occurred. So certainly there was a, there was that whenever uh, many of the the royalty owed money to to the Jews who because of their limitations of uh, Christian law, the Christians couldn't lend money to each other, that when the debts became high, often the Jews were expelled. By the way, the Jews had the same law, that they could not lend money to each other with interest. Interest that there was the same law, it was just you could do it to other people. If you're just joining us, this is Common Threads. My name is Fred Stella, and today we're discussing medieval history and interreligious relationships with Susan Weintraub. A couple of things. Uh, regarding some of the uh, books that you've uh, written about. For instance, uh, I have a question about, uh, what is this? The Quality of Mercy. Uh, In your paper, you give a few sentences here, and you mention that one of the the characters is Teresa Rodriguez, uh, and she's being burned at the stake, correct? Yes. For being a Jew. How did she acquire a name like Teresa Rodriguez when she's Jewish? Any idea? I mean, uh, how were, could you tell a person was Jewish by their names as easily back then? Well, you called me Susan, and so it probably would be hard to tell who I was here as well. That in general, people acquire the names that are popular within a country. And so certainly Jews who lived in Spain uh, often took on common first names, just as Jews who live in the United States often have names that uh, you know are very common here. How about Rodriguez, though? 
Um, there, there were Jewish names, actually, that were quite common. Geta is one that was very typically Jewish. The things that we tend to think of Schwartz and, and uh, Steinberg or whatever as being very Jewish names because they're Eastern European. But in fact, the, uh, there was a huge Jewish population in Spain and uh, some intermarriage, but some just what were very common Jewish names, and Rodriguez was one of them. Oh, one of the things you mentioned in your paper was that uh, it was, I forget which country, too, it was illegal for people to marry unless the Jew converted to Christianity. Is that correct? Yes, there was no such thing as an interfaith marriage, that there was only religious marriages. And if there were an illegal marriage, that the Jew had to convert and had to be married within the church. And then there were certain restrictions, depending on the country, that you could no longer go back and visit your family, you couldn't celebrate holidays, depending on the strictness of that particular time. So intermarriage was a very risky business in those days. But you mentioned earlier that uh, there were um, there were marriages where you could you would celebrate a baptism on one day and perhaps a bris another. Didn't you mention that yes, uh, people People tend to break laws, ah. and uh, I guess that's... <laughs> by people run red lights, even though we have laws on the books that you can't run a red light. I've seen people do it and try hard not to do it myself, but we have done that. And certainly at that time period, um, there was a tremendous interaction be between the families and the church from time to time, worried that, that, the, uh, the, that the ones who had converted from Judaism to Christianity would slide back and take their children with them. So they would, you know, at different times be more severe. But there are many cases um, that people just constantly went back and forth because families are families. And so we see that that occurs. However, there were laws against it. But that's one nice thing about studying the Middle Ages is that I find that people have not really changed. Laws have changed, technology has changed, but the human nature has not changed at all, and we seem to do the same things whatever countries and eras we live in. Was it as easy as just deciding to convert uh, uh in terms of if you felt that you were under uh, persecution or that you were the victim of prejudice and bigotry, um, was the change instantaneous? If, uh, for instance, uh, you're Jewish, I'm Christian, I have this uh, problem with you, then all of a sudden one day you come to me and say, I've joined the church. Uh, it's so hard to believe that uh, people would automatically go, oh, well, Susan, well, now you're one of us, we love you. Marry my son. <laughs> you're absolutely right. In a way, the change was instantaneous because you therefore had to follow the rules and regulations of being a Christian. However, because you could be baptized and then become Christian instantly, many of the Jewish converts had had no education in Christianity and simply did not know what to do. They continued living as Jews except they went to church. So they would still light candles on Friday night or not eat pork or, or do something as simple as changing the linens on Friday to prepare for the Sabbath. And so there were several consequences depending on where you live. If you were living, if you had the unfortunate um, luck to live in, in near Inquisition Spain, you could be burned at the stake, tortured, uh, have your family members uh, tormented as well. If you're living in other countries, you could remain more hidden. Uh, quite a few of our authors deal with this. What happens when you convert? And certainly there was a tremendous suspicion by the Christian community. Were these sincere converts? Or were they always Jews? And to a certain extent, they were always viewed as Jews. That doesn't, uh, that hasn't changed. For example, when I remember reading in history books that Disraeli was the first Jewish prime minister of England. But in fact, Disraeli had to convert before he was able to take over that role. So therefore, was he Jewish anymore? Well, all the history books still call him Jewish. 
And so it was something like that in the Middle Ages as well. Many people converted. Uh, how did they feel inside? And our authors deal with that. Some people wholeheartedly converted and sincerely felt Christian. Other people um, felt that they had done it for the sake of their families and safety and went along with it on the outside. Many remained Jews on the inside and, and secretly uh, kept all the holidays and the customs and the learning and hoped that they could get out of the country to a safer place as soon as possible. So you have a whole list of um, different kinds of reaction. Now in Spain they actually had um, a, the cleanliness of the, the blood, lipiesa de sangre, and excuse my Spanish accent here, and they, um, they, they were talking about people who were the converso generation. There were actually laws made against them, even though they had converted as to what they could do and what, um, who they could marry and uh, what professions they could enter. That was, that was uh, limited to Spain, to my knowledge. And during the Inquisition, did they not give you the opportunity, and this is what's, uh, what's almost humorous in a macabre way, is they put a sword to your face and say, accept Jesus or die, Yes. right? And so uh, if you did accept Jesus, your problems weren't over with. No, because then you're under the tremendous scrutiny, and people, if you read the Inquisition's records, um, and I, I, have, I have a whole book on them, it, it becomes what you were saying, a humorous and a very macabre, uh, as to what people were, were literally condemned and killed for, um, that, that they didn't eat pork, or they um, uh, didn't cross themselves in the right way, or they changed their linens on a different night, or uh, any of these whole host of things. The people who were forcibly converted and given no education were then expected to be sincere Christians and leave their families, leave their past ways, and, and embrace Christianity as a religion of love, which becomes tremendously ironic when you think of the conditions that most Jews converted under during, this, during these long, long years of the Middle Ages and Renaissance. It didn't stop during the Renaissance either. The, actually, the last um, execution of a Jew under the Inquisition was in the early 1800s. And so we, we don't tend to think that it went along that far. Certainly it was not as extreme in the later years as it was in the uh, 15th and, uh, and 16th centuries. What country was that, do you know, in the 18th century? It was in South America. And the, what ha what I, uh, many of the Jews left to go to Mexico and, and Brazil and, uh, and some of the other countries, and the Inquisition followed. And so it, it became very difficult for them. Here they had left, and then the Inquisition came afterwards. It was never quite as severe there as it was in, in Spain. However, it did occur, in there, and there still were some auto autodefes that occurred um, in South America and Central America, too, some in Mexico. So even in the late 15th century, would you consider that to be the height of anti-Semitic activity? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of the Inquisition of uh, 1492. Well, Does it get any worse, or, or was it worse prior to that? I think that the century before you see a steady building in Spain, what, what happened with the defeat of the Moors is that the, the culture was no longer so pluralistic. And so we see that without the balance of another power, military power, and the Jews didn't have military power at that time. And so I think it probably, certainly the 15th and 16th centuries were the worst in Spain. But in other countries, uh, one of the ironies that happens is as the Protestant Reformation um, begins, and it really doesn't just begin with Martin Luther, there were some people who were less successful but tried to begin, is that the church clamps down on anyone that they consider who are anti-Catholic. And so as the as different Protestant sects come up and rebel against the church, the, the church 
stomps down harder on the Jews. And so I don't, I'm not sure if the Inquisition was the worst. There were many different, certainly the Crusades were times that were very, very difficult for the Jewish community. Some in Germany were wiped out. In, throughout Europe, uh, Jews were rounded up and burned and tortured and forcibly converted. And this, this occurred through, throughout Europe. Um, whenever I hear people saying that we're going on a crusade for something, I shudder and wish that they would read the actual records of the crusades because they were not a noble enterprise. And certainly we need to remember that, uh, that, that whole cities were wiped out, not just of Jews. Children were kidnapped, women were raped, uh, farms were ransacked. Um, people were fighting against each other for any number of reasons. And, of course, the Jewish community suffered tremendously under this, under this uh, time that if they couldn't get to Jerusalem, they were going to kill some Jews along their way. And they had certainly marauding bands who were totally out of control going through much of Europe, uh, rounding up people. And there was some uh, self-defense. Sharon Newman deals with this to a certain extent in some of her books. But on the whole, the, uh, the Jews were at the mercy of, of clergymen, of noblemen, of their neighbors, and uh, it, didn't, it didn't always fare well for them. Was there ever an organized Jewish attempt uh, to rebel against the church? As a community, no. There were individual cases in which people did get arms and fight against crusaders. Occasionally they won. Uh, it, was, it was very difficult. It was illegal for Jews to carry arms in Europe. Now, Actually... Susan, excuse me, sure. actually, I was thinking more on an intellectual level, such as a Martin Luther. Was there any movement like that? Yes, there were, well, there were, it was fortunately started by the church, the disputations which occurred, in which Jewish leaders had to debate against Christian leaders, often with very unfair debate laws. But there were many times in which uh, the Jewish leaders intellectually won. And so we see this, you know, happening um, with, in Spain with uh, Nachmanides debating uh, Pablo Christiani and uh, under King James of Aragon, and he won, and the king rewarded him, and then the church said that they would excommunicate the king, and so uh, uh, Rabbi Nachman uh, was sent to, uh, to Israel, um, where he went. But there were, certainly, when you read the Talmud, there are many intellectual discussions in the Talmud about why the Jews are right and the Christians were wrong, but uh, if you publish that, you could get killed, or your families would get killed or lose their property, so the Jews were not able to freely discuss this. And I mean, I, and I discuss this in my paper, that when, you, when you're reading the Middle Ages, you must remember we're not living in modern-day America, where you can say pretty much anything you want intellectually, certainly religiously, and you are free. But that didn't occur in the Middle Ages, so you must you but had to be very careful what you put in writing or what you said publicly, because it, it could mean your life or the life of your family or your children. And so people were quite careful. But there were, certainly, when you read Jewish works, you see this all the time. And there are code words. So Adam, which originally stood for Esau, becomes Rome, and then later on the Christian church. And there are code words when you read the Talmud that you know who who, uh, the Jews of the time were talking about. And so they are still in existence today. Susan, we have just a minute left, and I want to uh, continue this conversation next week. Uh, But before we leave, uh, any particular books you would encourage us uh, to look at if we have, have interest in this subject? Well, certainly... Sharon Newman's books. I uh, I think that she is extremely well researched, and uh, you know I would I would recommend uh, reading those. Um, I had a, a very interesting encounter with uh, Gail Fraser, who writes about um, a convent, and we have been trying to work together to introduce a Jewish character into her works. And so I hope that that will occur in one of her next novels. So you might look out for um, uh, for I'm sorry. She writes under the name Margaret Fraser.
and so I would have to, uh, so I called her Gail because that's her first name, and so I would recommend hers as well, which gives you a very nice look at, at the other side, but, but certainly Sharon Newman, I think, is, is one of the best to look at, and she has eight or nine books out now in her Catherine Lavender ser- series. And then in the modern side, um, Faye Kellerman, with her, pol- she has a, uh, an Orthodox uh, police woman, Okay, I'll tell you what, let's talk about that next week because we are out of time. But Susan, thank you so much for being with us. My name is Fred Stella. Please join us again next week here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. In the past couple of years, this program has delved into the genre of historical mystery fiction on more than one occasion. It's here that we often find keen insights on life and religion in medieval times. So welcome to part two of my conversation with Susan Weintraub. Uh, Susan has lived in many diverse places. She was born in New Jersey, then she's lived in France, Oklahoma, Indiana, Brooklyn. She's back in New Jersey now, and she's taught every grade level in public, private, and home schools. Also, she's taught at universities, lectured at conferences, and church audiences. She is currently the associate principal of Gettleman Hebrew Day School in Rockland County, New York, and she's written a number of columns for newspapers, and uh, journals over the years. And uh, today we're going to talk specifically about two papers that she's written about the uh, genre of historical mystery fiction. One is entitled The Hidden Flame, Disputing the Myths of Jewish-Christian Relationships Through Medieval and Renaissance Historical Mysteries, and also Reprocessing Medieval Jewish-Christian History, Reading the Texts as a Jew. Susan, welcome back to Common Threads. Thank you very much, Fred. It's good to be here.
I'd like to start out by asking you, how do you process life as a committed Jew in the university setting that you're in? I remember one time when we were living in Indiana, one of my students came up to me, and uh, she kept on calling me a Jewish. And, and so I, kept, I said to her, why, why are you saying that? I, I'm a Jew, and she sort of cringed. And then I realized that she had never heard that word except in a negative way. And that was sad. This wasn't that long ago. And it is, th- it is often through cultural sources, what we've read, what our language says, that um, most of us are computer literate, and if you go onto any of the word processors and look up the source, it's one of my favorite places as a writer, and you put in the word Christian, and you will come up with all kinds of positive synonyms, like, like you know, kind, nice, good, or whatever, such as, and that was a very Christian thing to do, which, you know, you've heard people say. When you put in the word Jew, nothing comes up. And I think that this is very telling, that, that our language has a, has a tremendous amount of cultural baggage. And so, therefore, unfortunately, much of the cultural baggage for those who are Jewish was negative. And too often it hasn't changed. How do we reprocess this? I've enjoyed my discussions with many of the mystery writers because this is part of their mission. How do we show that, in fact, these stereotypes were not true, that people interacted that they were friends, that they were scholarly friends, they, they, were, uh, they were partners together, that there was a tremendous amount of cultural exchange throughout the Middle Ages and Renaissance between Jewish and Christian communities. Why isn't this reflected in our books? And so I'm very pleased that certainly to the popular audience, through many of these mysteries, that they are getting a glimpse at a society which is truer than I think that has been presented um, to date. Now, let's... Uh bring this into a different context. Uh, I just heard last week that there is a school somewhere down south, I forget the state, you may have heard about this, there is a a school, a predominantly African-American school, and they no longer will be teaching To Kill a Mockingbird. Have you heard about that? No. Certainly, you know, when you look at uh, at many of these texts, because I've heard the same thing with um, some of Mark Twain's books, and uh, I've heard it um, about many books along the way, Should We Teach Merchant of Venice? And so this goes back to what I was saying, that when there is a negative stereotype, that there's nothing wrong with teaching it as long as it is discussed, that look, look how people were looked at from this time period. As a matter of fact, we taught To Kill a Mockingbird in our middle school here, and we put a play on and the reaction from the students was um, that, they, that they totally sympathized with the black community. It was not that they felt racist. It was the opposite, but that's because of the way our teacher presented it. How would you feel if you were in this situation? Look at, look at what happened. And so I think that we must be very careful in how we present it, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't. Although I do, I do understand why, why schools might not wish to, to tackle certain topics, and, uh, but too many of our authors, unfortunately, brought along cultural stereotypes with them. In fact, most of them did. And so even great, you know, great writers such as, you know, Mark Twain or Shakespeare, they have them built into what they're saying. So how do we continue utilizing these great writers but discuss what, what was felt at the time? And I don't think we should shy away from it. That's the problem, not the work, but how we bring it about to students. 
You write that uh, scholars for years believed that Shakespeare never even met a Jew. Is that correct? Oh, sure. When you when you read this, you'll find that uh, they say that he has such a wonderful imagination because when you look at, at the Merchant of Venice, look how realistically and sympathetically he creates Jewish characters. But there has been a tremendous debate, and certainly Faye Kellerman got in on this, that whether the speech, The Quality of Mercy, was actually written to save Dr. Lopez's life, who was the, um, the physician to Queen Elizabeth, and she's not the only one who has come up with this theory. Uh, and so, yeah, there, there were Jews living in England. Um, they weren't living openly, but certainly they, they were living there, and so uh, this, this is a perception that we need to change. You also, when you talk about Jews in literature, you talk about observant Jews. You, you often use that adjective. Yes. Uh, tell us Tell us the difference between just merely having Jews and observant Jews in literature. I was thinking about this with um, Anne Benson's two books, um, which my mom is actually reading right now, The uh, uh, the Burning Road and The Plague Tales. I think I told them in the, the opposite order. And she has someone who is a Jewish doctor, and uh, he is a Jewish character, but he is not an observant Jew. And one of the things that you find is that cultural stereotypes are often increased because you see someone who is Jewish in uh, either a national or kind of uh, racist racist way, but yet doesn't do anything that is Jewish. And so I think that we, we see a, a problem here, and that this occurs in many, in many of the books, that uh, they don't observe the Sabbath, they don't keep kosher, they're not knowledgeable about Judaism, they... Um, they don't talk about Israel, so that we, we don't see them doing things which observant Jews did and still do, that we see it as a, um, like a Steinfeld identity, that there's a series of jokes or, or a certain accent that you speak, but yet you, you're not really doing anything that, that is Jewish. You can celebrate Christmas, or you can eat in a certain way, or you can be totally secular, and you can still be Jewish, which of course is true, um, but it doesn't mean that you're observant. It doesn't mean that you're, that you're educated or that you're following the, the life cycle that exists within the Jewish community who are observant. And, and real quickly, um, back in the 13th, 14th century, if you were a non-observant Jew, uh, that didn't make you fare any better in the Christian community, did it? No, it didn't. In fact, throughout history, um, there's been a tremendous debate within the Jewish community. Does your being observant make you more a target? And certainly when you look at Hitler or the Crusades or the Inquisitions didn't make any difference whether you were kosher. It didn't make any difference uh, whether you observed the Sabbath. You were still considered Jewish. And so it becomes kind of an irony that so many of the people who assimilated to escape anti-Semitism, in fact, did not escape it. And forgive me for going back and recovering uh, an area that we already have, but on the Crusades, I know that many people really think that the Crusades was uh, a conflict between Christians and Muslims, and that the Jews didn't play a, a big part in that. But let's talk about that for a bit. How, why was it that the Christians uh, had uh, anything against the Jews in that particular series of wars? Um, certainly the recovery of Israel um, was because of the sense that that Christians were the new Israel. This is what the word New Testament means, that they, they were the new covenant. And so the Jews, of course, had a completely different point of view, that they still felt that they had the covenant, and that, you know, that obviously other peoples didn't. But that 
in order to claim the covenant, in order to get Jerusalem back, to get Israel back under Christian control, it not only was a matter of wresting it militarily from Muslims, but it was also a matter of having the, the sense that religiously they deserved it. And so, therefore, the, the fact that Jews lived in any of the European countries, and also, of course, in Israel, was kind of a slap in the face. Here were these people who still were not accepting Jesus. Not only didn't they accept Jesus at the time of his life, but they're not accepting Jesus today. And so for many people, it didn't make any difference where the Jews were living, that in order to reclaim Jerusalem, it had to be reclaiming heavenly Jerusalem. And that meant to uh, get rid of those who did not acknowledge the supremacy of the Christian Church. And so you see uh, tremendous tragedy, even when there, the conquest was in Israel, that the, uh, the armies on both sides killed the Jews. That when, the, when uh, Jerusalem was conquered, they, they said the blood was just flowing in the street, and that was of Muslims and Jews together. That um, there, there are terrible, terrible stories of what happened with the persecutions of the Jews when the Crusaders came to the variety of towns that they, uh, that they occupied, but certainly Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to make a 180 here okay. and, and uh, go in a completely different direction. Something that we normally do here on Common Threads uh, when we have guests is to have people discuss their own personal spiritual journey. And I'm wondering if you'd uh, uh, take a few minutes to talk with us on that. Well, I've often thought that my, that my years of living in Indiana and Oklahoma prepared me for studying about the Jews in the Middle Ages because having been brought up in the New York metropolitan area, uh, although I wasn't in a large Jewish community, I was in a small town. Nonetheless, there are always people who were Jewish around me and many institutions. When I moved to Oklahoma and, and Indiana, um, especially in Indiana, we were in a very small town, very, very few Jews, really. Um, there was no rabbi there, very small community. And I think I, I had a feeling for, for this, what it was like to be isolated, what it was like to be cut off from the mainstream of Judaism. And in fact, when we lived in Oklahoma and the early years in Indiana, my husband and I and our family was not at all observant. And it was through living there that we, we became observant Jews. My mother always laughed, but, you know, you became kosher in, uh, in Muncie, but Muncie, Indiana. And so um, there, was some, there was something about the experience being there, being called upon, being, I was asked to represent the Jewish community constantly. And I began writing a newspaper column. I wrote a weekly newspaper column for six and seven years about what it was like to live in Indiana as um, someone who was becoming slowly more observant and what my experiences were there and how we eventually left the area to come to live in, in the New York area simply because of that. Um, it was very enriching. I think I learned a great deal about myself. But, you know, and we had some interesting occurrences. People would call me all the time thinking that just because I was Jewish, I would know things. I mean, we had very odd phone calls from, did I know the, uh, the recipe that Moses used for making matzah, which I didn't. <laughs> He hadn't, Moses hadn't spoken to me recently, and um, being asked to go into public schools where I was the first person that these children had ever met who was Jewish. I was asked to go to a, um, a school to set up a Holocaust program in uh, northern Indiana, which had been the headquarters of the Klan in the earlier years, and uh, I often, there were still no Jews living in the town, but I often thought how different it was over these past 50 years, how much uh, the United States has changed, and I was very glad to learn all about that because people are insulated wherever they live, and uh, I think I learned what it was like to be a minority in a way that I would not have understood if I hadn't lived there, and uh, and I've become tremendously 
enriched. They also appreciate very much moving back here and being part of a community where other people are kosher, where other people observe the Sabbath, where I can uh, where I can see many of the where I can put up a sukkah, and I'm not the only one in our town. And that I just found that uh, the 90s for me were a search for community. And I began to understand when I read so many of these mysteries where Jews were searching to be part of a community, especially some of the ones, uh, for example, um, Hubert, in uh, the father of the main character in Catherine, um, the Love Wonder series by Sharon Newman, that he felt just a tremendous need to do this, to give up everything. And that's what we did. My husband and I gave up university jobs to move back east, which wasn't very easy. And, and I begin to sympathize with so many of these characters and feel that I have an understanding that I never would have had had I not lived all, you know, all those years in Indiana and Oklahoma. And tell us how you got involved in the, the, the day school, in homeschooling, rather. Um, that, was, that was very different. Uh, my daughter was in, uh, in kindergarten, and we were not uh, happy with the experience. And people kept on telling us she should homeschool, and I thought, oh, what, all these nutcases are homeschooling. What do you mean, me? You know? And uh, they introduced me to some people who were homeschooling, and I was quite surprised. They seemed very normal and likable. And... Uh, I still had, I still couldn't quite come to grips with it. And then, towards the end of the year, my daughter um, became sick, and we kept her home for the week uh, from school. And uh, she told me it was the best week of her life. So we began, we began homeschooling. And most of the people homeschool in in the Midwest are evangelical. And I found that there was a tremendous respect from these people towards us as we had our um, own religious journey. Obviously, there were some differences, and uh, you know, which which naturally occur. But we felt. Uh, it was wonderful. I loved homeschooling, and uh, I, uh, my kids and I talk about it now. My daughter is entering her senior year of college, and my son is in his senior year of high school. And we talk about their homeschooling years, which they also um, they loved, and uh, they look back at it as being a very wonderfully enriching time for us as a family. And also, you know, and also intellectually, I was able to I speak French, and I was able to teach them French. I taught them Hebrew. We, my husband is a professional musician, and so. You know, we did many uh, enriching kinds of things, and we were also able to be Jewish in a different way because we weren't held to the curriculum and um, schedule of the public schools. And now what are you doing uh, as an associate principal? So you asked me that, and I apologize. Yeah. I, when I began writing a newspaper column, I talked about the fact that I, I, I was a lay rabbi in our community for three years, and I was uh, officiating at my son's bar mitzvah when he was 13. And we had become more and more religious, and the week after that, we joined an Orthodox congregation. And in Orthodox congregations, women do not read from the Torah or lead services. And I wrote an article about this, and a New York newspaper read it and picked it up and asked me to write for them, the Jewish press. And uh, the person who um, is one of the main people of that newspaper also runs a, an Orthodox school in Brooklyn, and I was eventually hired to be a principal there. It was a total irony, quite a few years later, and then uh, we relocated to New Jersey, and it became too far to commute to uh, the Yeshiva of Manhattan Beach, where I still have many wonderful friends and still enjoy a relationship with them. And then we moved, and I am now with a, um, a school that is not Orthodox, it's conservative, and uh, in Rockland County. And so it, be, it was through my writing and through actually our becoming religious that, that all of this occurred. It was very ironic, I think. Much of what's happened to me in life has chosen me, and I haven't always chosen it, but it seems to have worked out very well. You're listening to Common Threads on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and my guest today is Susan Weintraub. 
And at this moment, we're discussing her uh, spiritual journey and uh, that has led her to a great deal of writing. And actually, the writing has led to a great deal of your spiritual journey, I, from what I'm seeing uh, as well. It's very interactive, how literature and uh, life seem to, to uh, intertwine, at least in my life. What was it like? So I'm assuming when you were a lay rabbi, were you with a Reformed congregation? Yes. And so you went from Reformed to joining an Orthodox congregation. And in the process, if, if you will forgive the, the, the uh, use uh, of this term, but you sort of demoted yourself uh, from being a lay rabbi to being a, a congregant, correct? Well, many people have asked me how I, how I did that. And um, it's a different approach, and you look at, and you look at it in a totally uh, different way. But it's the same when, when I left... Um, my, when I was at a university and became a mom, I didn't feel I was demoting myself. Uh, I, I think being a mother has been one of the most enriching experiences of my life, but I, you know, I wasn't paid for it in, in many people's minds if you have a certain like a university professor as opposed to being a housewife. But for me, it was one of the most wonderful experiences of my life, and I feel that also being a part of an Orthodox community, everyone participates. Most people around me read Hebrew. They're very knowledgeable. They are very active with uh, working with Israel. So for me, it wasn't a demotion. It was just uh, it was just a difference. I still teach. I'm going to be teaching an adult education class um, for um, up here um, in uh, in Rockland County. I taught a Parsha class here. I still very involved with the kids. Um, I, I feel I am participating in a very full way, but I'm participating in a different way. And there have been tremendous changes within Orthodoxy as well that uh, women can be presidents of congregations and women can have more active roles. Girls have bat mitzvahs within the Orthodox community, although in a different fashion. And I have no doubt that there will be some changes within Orthodoxy, but some things will not change. And that's why I joined, that's why I became an Orthodox Jew. There were some things that I felt I wanted um, in my life that gave me a tremendous amount of, of spiritual satisfaction such as keeping kosher, such as observing the Sabbath. I couldn't imagine observing the Sabbath. How can you not go shopping on, on Saturday? How could you not watch TV, use electricity? How could you do these things? And now I feel the opposite. How could I not? By Friday afternoon, I am ready. Uh, it is a time I don't have to answer the phone. I don't do work. I don't do writing. Sometimes that bothers me because I have a great idea. But it's a time that, um, that I spend... Uh, you know, with my husband, not as much with my kids as they're getting older, but it used to be more with my kids, and, and with my community. And it's a time that's uh, kind of a circle of quiet, to borrow from uh, Madeline Lingle here, who wrote that it is a book that I can enter and refresh myself every week. And it becomes, it becomes very important for me that I can join my community and feel this way on a weekly basis, the holiday once a week. And, it, and, it, and I, I don't know how I would do without it now. Um, and then if you asked me 20 years ago, I'm sure I would have told you that I could never imagine living that way. Life hands us kinds of surprises that we totally change. I'm sure I couldn't have imagined living, coming back to the East Coast when I was living, you know, out in Indiana and Oklahoma all these years. So it was another lifetime. But each each step along, you know, my, my widely traveled journeys here have, you know, have just enriched my life. And I wouldn't, I really wouldn't give up any of the things that I experienced in that way. When you were living in Indiana, you said this, that's when the uh, all the, the track towards observance began, correct? Yes. And, but even though at that point you would, uh, you were, did you belong to a congregation at Yes, all? we always belonged to a congregation. We just were, um, we didn't always attend. Yeah, I'm sure you know lots of people like that who mm -hmm. come for certain holidays and don't always go on a weekly basis, and we didn't. And uh, I remember distinctly what was the change. My daughter was uh, three years old, and she was at a, a local nursery school. 
And she came home one November and said to me, are we Christmas people? So I said, no, of course not, we're Jewish. <laughs> and so like, what did she know? We were, we, maybe we had Hanukkah the year before, and we had a box of matzah for Passover, but she was a small child. She couldn't remember six months before. So I said to my husband, what can we do that will make her and my son, who was a, um, a baby at the time, what can we do that would make her remember? So we decided that on Friday night we would light candles. And the kids loved it. They thought it was so great. I was very awkward. Who I never saw anyone lighting candles on Friday night. And so then a few weeks later, we said, you know, this was really fun. Maybe we'll put on a tablecloth. You know, and so every couple of weeks we started doing something else. And we found that we really enriched us as a family. But it took us many years. It wasn't, it was not overnight. It wasn't, as I say, you know, from bacon to blech. Blech is what you put on a stove to keep your food hot on uh, on the Sabbath when you're not cooking. And so, you know, it was very, very small. You know, we slowly stopped going to, you know, hamburger places, and we, we slowly started going to synagogue, and we added different holidays in, and it, it took us over 10 years. It was not overnight. Um, and so we found that we liked it, and then we had to find our place in the community because there are many different kinds of Orthodox Jews, and we experimented, visited different groups. I spent uh, a week in Brooklyn in Crown Heights with Lubavitch, uh, Lubavitch family, and who I still maintain contact with, and we tried all different kinds of Judaism, and now we're modern Orthodox and, uh, and feel very good about that spot. Um, you know, but obviously, just like many of the characters in the mystery stories, uh, we're the only ones in our family who are Orthodox, and so we have many people in our family who are intermarried or who don't belong anywhere, who are reform and conservative, and we have a lot of, shall we say, interesting discussions about uh, our, our different way of life than they do, which is just as alien to them as it is to many people who are not Jewish. Do you, what are your um, thoughts on intermarriage? How, how can people who come from two different traditions make something work? Um, it's probably not a popular answer, but I'm against intermarriage uh, because from the Jewish point of view, uh, the Jews generally statistically lose out and the children and grandchildren are not Jewish. And so for me, it's a loss of culture and heritage. This doesn't mean that you can't share culture and heritage because I have many friends who aren't Jewish, certainly living in Indiana and Oklahoma. Most of my friends weren't Jewish. But um, I feel that within a family, uh, you can't be half Jewish. I remember a friend of mine in in Indiana, one said to me, her kids were half Jewish, and I just said, well, what half? Mm. Said, well, they're half American and half Jewish. So I said, well, what does that make me then? Am I, you know, am I all American? Am I all Jewish? Whatever. And you can't, you can't really be half Christian and half Jewish or half Muslim and half Jewish or whatever because it doesn't really, it, it doesn't give credit to each religious tradition. There are, are many things that we share, certainly. The, all the moral precepts, the goodness of man and charity and that kind of thing. But there are many parts that we don't share, and I don't think that we give credit to um, an individual spirituality and we say you can really do half and half or you can really learn later on. And so from my point of view, I, I, don't, I uh, would not approve there. Are, um, I don't know how people can make it work. I've seen some people. Usually it's by following one person's and not another religion, or sometimes it's by doing nothing within a family. And so I don't know if that's the kind of compromise that is the best. Obviously, it happens. 60, 50% of Jews intermarry, so there's a lot of couples out there who try to make it work one way or another. And so, you know, I wish them, I wish them good luck, but it's not a path that I approve. And imparting this, uh, this philosophy to your kids, uh, is, that, is that working? 
Well, they ha- they uh, are not married, at the, you know, at the moment. It um, they they grew up in the Midwest, and so they've seen a tremendous amount of this. Um, very much higher um, intermarriage in small towns, like you know, what we were in, in Indiana. So uh, you have to get back to me, you know, on that one. Uh, you know, we we have we've had serious family discussions about this as our kids, you know, get older, and so. Um, you know, we'll have to see where where we go with that. I would say most people in the Orthodox and certainly conservative communities agree with me, and even the reform movement has has begun to change to um, pretty much to at least try to encourage those who are um, intermarried to bring the partner into a Jewish way of life. Susan, we want to thank you so very much. Our time is up, and uh, we've enjoyed this uh, past half hour as well as uh, last week, and we wish you the very best of luck in your your future writings. Thank you so much, Fred. It was great having a chance to speak with you. Wonderful. This is Common Threads. You're listening to WGVU Radio. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.